You're listening to HIV Frontlines, the Body Pros podcast series focusing on resource-poor areas throughout the world. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, please visit us on the web. Welcome to HIV Frontlines, a new podcast series from the Body Pro. In this series, we'll talk to a range of healthcare professionals who have both provided HIV care and trained healthcare workers in resource-poor areas throughout the world. From China to Ukraine to Rwanda, these inspiring clinicians are doing their part to make a difference in regions of the world where access to HIV treatment and care is only a shadow of what is generally available in the United States. Through these interviews, we'll get a glimpse of the realities of practicing HIV care in some of the world's poorest areas. Today, we're talking to Dr. Benjamin Young, who is actually one of the Body Pros faculty. He participates in conference coverage and answers questions in our Ask Your Colleague forum. Dr. Young is an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Colorado and a consultant physician for Denver ID Consultants at Rose Medical Center in Denver, Colorado. He has recently returned from St. Petersburg, Russia, where he has been helping to train healthcare providers. Welcome, Dr. Young. I guess my first question is, how did you end up working in St. Petersburg? Well, I went to St. Petersburg as part of an ongoing project with the American International Healthcare Alliance. And AIHA is a um, cross-Atlantic program to help bring Western uh, physicians and medical experts into uh, former Soviet uh, cities um, to build capacity and um, uh, help train both uh, physicians uh, um, nurses and other healthcare providers. So it was part of that ongoing relationship that I had with AIHA that brought me first to Ukraine, uh, and then more recently to St. Petersburg as a as part of this uh, training program. Do you know if they're still looking for healthcare professionals? From time to time, they look for additional uh, healthcare providers. Uh huh. Okay. And and do you where do they get their funding? Um, funding for AIHA comes from various organizations, um, and it's really dependent on the. Um, the country uh, that we're working in. So, for example, in Ukraine, um, the funding comes um, from places like the Global Fund and from the Clinton Foundation. Uh, and by contrast, in the Russian Federation, uh, the primary funding source is the um, is USAID, uh, and uh, uh, surprisingly, in a sense, from the Bush administration. Hmm. Um, so, when did you first go to St. Petersburg? Well, I went to St. Petersburg first um, la- at the end of last summer. Um, and, uh, again, as part of what was the first program to try to help train um, Russian HIV doctors about tuberculosis medicine and simultaneously train tuberculosis doctors about HIV medicine. What was your first impression when you got there? Uh, St. Petersburg is a, is a really interesting city. Um, it's a city of incredible history and uh, culture. It is in my view, um, the place, the birthplace of the Bolshevik Revolution. It's the home of the czars and has many of the icons of Russian history and Russian wealth. Superimposed on that, of course, is uh, this incredibly growing um, uh, HIV epidemic with unexpectedly large numbers of patients uh, with incredible difficulties with access to care uh, infrastructure. And how do you characterize these patients? What, what are, are they coming from? In, um, injection drug use. What, what, what's the the source of infection? Yeah, traditionally, uh, the Western view of the Eastern European epidemic is that of injection drug use, and and that's a 
fair characterization of the early ep- earlier epidemic uh, in the Russian Federation, where the majority of cases were among injection drug users and a minority among patients who acquired HIV sexually. Uh, interestingly, um, most recently, the the majority of new cases in the Russian Federation are, are heterosexually acquired. And so for the last two years, for example, some, in, in excess of 60% of new cases uh, are among uh, heterosexuals and a smaller number of cases among injection drug users. Are these heterosexual women or men? Uh, it's, it, the heterosexual transmission is, it appears to be roughly 50-50. So it, it's an epidemic that in many ways um, uh, demographically looks a lot like the, epide- the epidemics in southern Africa where the majority of cases are among heterosexuals now. I'm curious about the, the male heterosexual numbers. because Is it because there are um, other sexually transmitted diseases? There are other cofactors that make them more vulnerable? Um, and how does it, why would it differ so much from the United States? Well, I think it's simply that the, the, um, the, the major difference, uh, I actually think I look, I look at this as the United States being the exception rather than the rule. And the rule being that in the, in the, for the majority of countries and the majority of cases around the world, HIV is transmitted heterosexually. Uh, and what we see in, in the Russian Federation, for example, is this, is a very interesting crossover, uh, of this, um, epi- or the, the emergence of the heterosexual epidemic, um, and, uh, proportionally speaking, a decrease in the, uh, impact of injection drug use on the epidemic. So if we go back and look at statistics from the, um, the period prior to, uh, to 2000, between 80 and 90 percent of, of new cases in Moscow, for example, were injection drug use, uh, and only 5 or 10 percent among uh, heterosexuals. Uh, in the last two years, uh, over 60 percent of new cases were among heterosexuals, and only um, 25 percent of cases among injection drug users. So we've just seen this really two different epidemics in a way. Um, and the emergence of a, unfortunately, self-sustaining epidemic among people who identify themselves as heterosexuals. Submersed in all of this is a uh, rapidly growing epidemic, uh, numerically smaller, but uh, growing epidemic nonetheless among uh, men who have sex with men. And what's the average age of this population? Um, most of them are young, young adults. Uh, like that in, in the United States in many ways, uh, there are a lot of cases among people who are uh, certainly less than um, 35. Um, I think the, the largest proportion of patients newly diagnosed in um, in Russia um, were among men between the ages of 25 and 30, uh, followed closely by uh, women of the same uh, age group. So, you know, the majority of cases um, are among young adults between, let's say, 20 and 30 years old. Hmm. Can you tell me what's your typical day like when you're in St. Petersburg? Well, the, the training, what we're, what we're involved with are, are um, multi-city training programs in the sense that the, uh, what we do or what the, um, the Russian, uh, our Russian colleagues do is they bring together physicians, nurses, and social workers from various cities, uh, into one particular city or one training center. Uh, there's an AIDS education training center in St. Petersburg and a, uh, a parallel center in, in Moscow. And in these centers, physicians and healthcare providers, um, roughly between between 30 and 40, come, um, come together for a week-long training pro- uh, program. The day typically starts uh, very <clears throat> very early, um, and in the uh, the Russian winter, uh, very dark. Uh, and we um, get uh, as a group um, transported to the, uh, the usually to the aid center. These aid centers are, of course, uh, on the campuses of the uh, AIDS clinics or AIDS hospitals in the city as well. 
and and then we do a variety of of, uh, of training and learning exercises that go that range from didactic lectures uh, to role plays to case reviews uh, to patient interviews. Uh, it's really a multidisciplinary uh, program, uh, often in partnership with uh, uh, with Russian experts um, who uh, are also serving um, to train the Russian colleagues. Uh, mixed in with this, um, time de- you know, depending on time and, and so on, um, are uh, ad hoc consultation um, and second opinions for difficult cases within the centers themselves. So it's an opportunity both to, to interact with uh, healthcare providers from across a very large country of Russia, as well as to um, uh, hear about and meet some of the more challenging cases uh, within the city centers. And and this goes on all day. Yeah, these are all-day programs uh, with a with a short break for lunch um, and uh, generally horrible uh, uh, coffee, uh, instant coffee, uh, which is uh, mandatory given the the 10-hour time change from uh, from Denver to uh, to Russia. <laughs> and then, how many people are there? Uh, somewhere between 25 and, and 40 individuals. Um, often, uh, the physicians at the local centers, for you know, at the St. Petersburg uh, Botkin Hospital or at the, Mo- the Moscow City AIDS Center, for example, will be, uh, let's say, drop-in attendees of these meetings as well. So the the the, the, the census will uh, you know will, will vary from day to day and so on. What I think is really quite interesting again is is the participation of people at, at multiple levels of training and multiple discipline uh, disciplines uh, all in the same place. And how would you um, characterize the, their knowledge base? I mean, compared to American physicians, the Russian physicians are are are, are amazing bookworms. Um, they know data like like no others. Um, that stands in contrast, however, to the the, pra- the practical knowledge base, particularly when it comes to antiretroviral therapies. That situation isn't really surprising in in, in a way. Um, the Russian education system is very data rich, uh, and it's my impression that Russian physicians can uh, are able to to memorize algorithms and tables and protocols in ways that uh, uh, I, I can I can only envy. But because antiretroviral therapies have only recently become available, um, and because program uh, programs for HIV systematic HIV care are relatively new in the country practical hands-on uh, um, knowledge, um, and especially in smaller cities, uh, is lacking, uh, particularly when it comes to the management of antiretroviral therapies. So the, the, what about you have your, your, your training and they're also Russian trainers? Correct. And those are trainers who have been out of the country and have been trained already by other physicians? Sometimes they have trained out of country. More often, they are phys- the first physicians in country to, to have people on therapy. So at, at some point during the day, uh, do you actually see patients? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the patient is actually brought to the the teaching center or, you know, it, the teaching center is really just a, you know, a room separated from the, the actual clinic space, sometimes upstairs or down the hall. Um, and, and the, the um, uh, patients provide a incredible learning resource uh, on one hand. And conversely, I think for the patients, this, this really provides an opportunity for them to um, to interact uh, with other healthcare providers and, in a sense, to provide second, third, and 15th opinions on their care. And what sort of cases are they seeing that are challenging? Well, I think the, the, the single largest problem area that I see, and, and certainly something that differs tremendously from that in the United States, is that a, a very large proportion of patients 
uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, in both Ukraine and Russia, are TB co-infected patients. The statistics, at least from the, the official statistics, say something in the neighborhood of 50% of, of HIV-infected patients have to, active tuberculosis. These are the patients who frequently wind up in hospital um, and uh, provide some of the most challenging management issues because one has to treat tuberculosis uh, aggressively and before the initiation of antiretroviral therapies. Um, a significant proportion of the of the deaths that occur, the HIV-related deaths that occur in the Russian Federation are uh, due to tuberculosis complications. So it's, this, is a, this is really the number one priority in terms of the, uh, let's say, the medical management of patients. These patients who are co-infected, at what point in their HIV infection are they? Yeah, it's very advanced disease. Even I mean, There's a bit of a debate among patients who might present with, uh, early, let's say, um, more conventional tuberculosis, um, and they debate as to whether someone who has what we call cavitary tuberculosis is, is, you know, is an AIDS-defining illness. In, in, in Russia, following the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a um, concomitant collapse of the public health system and a simultaneous rise of epidemic tuberculosis exposure. This has led, of course, to a population of people who, are, who have, um, many of whom have been exposed to, to, to TB. The translation of this is that there's a silent tuberculosis epidemic in the general population, this becomes manifest in HIV patients um, much later in the natural history of disease. But the reality is that the majority of patients that I interact with are patients who um, are presenting with tuberculosis as their first uh, symptom of HIV disease uh, and often with CD4 counts that are uh, below 100. So, and um, how's your Russian? Um, did the language barrier make your work more difficult? Were there always translators available? Yeah, Russia, uh, you know, if you've ever wanted to know what it's like to be an illiterate uh, or a toddler, um, all, all, all an American has to do is to go to Russia um, because the alphabet is entirely different. Um, when I first arrived there, I was functionally illiterate um, and really couldn't do anything without the assistance of translators. Um, from a medical perspective, everything is translated, um, both the um, the printed or computer-based materials are all translated into Russian. Um, all the lectures are translated from Russian to English and vice versa. Um, so it's a it's an existence where where you hear your, you you hear yourself speak in English and then a half second later hear the same words in in Russian uh, and everything that's spoken back to you, of course, is translated twice or trans is spoken in Russian and then translated into English. So it's like um, um, spending a week listening in echoes. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 an interesting way of putting it. Um, so, how, how, what what HIV monitoring tests are available um, in St. Petersburg? Well, it, it, again, the answer to this, of course, varies from city to city. Um, the best centers for HIV care uh, in in Russia are in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, and a few other cities, including Orenburg and Irkutsk, um, for example. Um, the availability of testing, diagnostic testing uh, for HIV, again, is, is very city-dependent. So, for example, in St. Petersburg and Moscow, the two, um, the two best centers, uh, viral load testing and CD4 counts are, are, um, are widely available. Um, but because of uh, financial constraints, um, not, uh, certainly viral load testing are not, uh, not done with the same frequency as they are in the United States. Um, just to put it into context, a CD4 count in Russia costs roughly 20 U.S. dollars. Uh, by contrast, a viral load test costs about 125 dollars. 
Um, and in an environment of limited resources, um, uh, viral load testings are, are, are really thought of as a, a luxury for many uh, patient um, uh, settings. So I take it there are no re- resistance tests? Again, it varies from center to center. Um, the two Moscow, the Moscow City Center um, and the St. Petersburg centers um, actually have resistance tests coming online, um, and um, and so um, a few patients are able to avail themselves of these tests. Mm-hmm. And what medications are available in Russia? Yeah, you know, Russia is an interesting story. Russia is a country that um, is a signatory, as I understand it, to the World Trade Organization, uh, and. Within the context of the uh, United Nations, the Global Fund, uh, and so on, is a middle-class country. And what this means is that Russia doesn't buy uh, um, generic HIV medications um, from um, from India or um, Brazil or South Africa, but rather buys the same branded products that are available in the United States and Western Europe. So uh, what this means is that the same brands, largely that we see in the United States, um, are available. Uh, in Russia, there are very considerable difficulties in terms of the the continuity of the, that access because of the um, let's say the importation stream. <clears throat> One of the biggest concerns of Russian physicians is the long term availability of therapies, and they're concerned that if they start a patient on therapy today, that in a month or two those same medications might not be available. How do you adjust your approach to HIV care when you pra- when you deal with patients in in Russia when you train people? I mean, how, do you have to adjust it a lot? Yeah, I think it's I think the, the first overriding principle uh, for uh, American physicians working abroad um, is the the need to be very sensitive to the um, both the the the, the let's say the professional culture um, and the practice habits of the local doctors. Uh, in other words, um, it's a collaborative uh, learning and training process, a collaborative uh, care process. Um, I think too often there's a tendency to, to invoke medical imperialism and, uh, and a, a scenario that is not uh, often welcomed by um, either local physicians or local governments. Now, that said, it's heartening to know that the um, Russian Ministry of Health treatment guidelines are becoming more or less in sync with international uh, treatment guidelines. And so, at least in principle, um, Russian physicians uh, practice a standard of, of care, which, which again, resembles that of, of, uh, of our country. It's important, however, though, to, to, to understand that um, there are significant difficulties in terms of um, specific patient populations. And those specific po- patient populations in Russia really represent the majority of patients. And so, um, these include issues related to, as we mentioned, tuberculosis, um, other very significant issues related to um, care for injection drug users. There is, for example, no substitution therapy or methadone therapy uh, available in Russia. Um, and, and so the, the entire issue of how we take care of um, uh, narcotic dependency in Russia um, is, is very much more challenged than that in the United States. Um, there are tr- really significant issues with stigma um, and the uh, virtual criminalization of an HIV diagnosis um, in Russia so that patients are, are, are reluctant to, uh, to, to, um, to get tested um, and reluctant uh, to, to, um, to access care. Remember that this is a system where the hospitals are run by the state. There are often uniformed policemen in the lobbies of the hospitals 
And in a country where uh, the perception, the stigma, is that HIV means that you are an injection drug user, and if you're an injection drug user, you're a criminal. So the notion of HIV means, at least is perceived, as one where you might be a criminal, and the act of walking into the clinic means you have to walk past state-level police. I've seen some of your photographs, and the hospitals are difficult to find, I would think, if you don't know it exists. Absolutely. Um, it's it's really quite interesting in, 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 a, in cities that have uh, literally tens of thousands of HIV patients. All of the HIV hospitals and HIV clinics are unmarked. Um, they do this on purpose, in large part because of the degree of stigma. And so um, often the entrances to these, these clinics and, and facilities exist what, seem, what seemingly look like down the back alley uh, and certainly without significant signage. Um, and so it's, uh, it speaks to the, the level of stigma that, uh, and challenges that patients uh, face in terms of accessing care. So is the stigma also related to homosexuality, or is that not an acknowledged issue at all? It's, it's largely an unacknowledged issue um, in terms of the, but, but in terms of, let's say, cultural stigma, uh, homosexuality is really not um, accepted in, in, in Russia, um, though there are... Um, the, you know, the very nascent beginnings of both gay rights, political movements, um, as well as um, rights for, um, for HIV-infected individuals. But these are not um, widely accepted, and even, uh, you know, among um, sort of the educated um, street people, sort of educated person on the street in Russia, Will um, will say things about injection drug users or gays or HIV infected patients that uh, I think we largely abandoned in the United States 20 years ago. So the, the level of stigma in the general population um, is is really um, quite uh, profound, even among the the educated intelligentsia. In terms of mother to child transmission, what's the standard uh, prevention used in Russia? Prevention of mother to child transmission, or PMTCT, I think is actually. One of the bright points in the in the Russian um, uh, HIV healthcare system. Um, I've worked very closely uh, with uh, Vladimir Rusadov, who's the director of the AIDS AIDS program, uh, a place called Botkin Hospital. Uh, Botkin is the world's largest um, infectious disease hospital, and has its its own separate obstetric hospital for infectious disease patients. Uh, as I understand the statistics, something in the neighborhood of four or five hundred HIV positive pregnancies were, were uh, cared for in that hospital last year and the year before. Um, prior to the advent of, or the arrival of antiretroviral therapies, of roughly 25 to 30 percent of these women would deliver HIV positive babies. Um, and in the last couple of years, that rate has, been, has gone from 30 percent down to 2 percent. And, and I think it really. Um, shows what one can do with investment in access to care um, and, and implementation across the, and, and really in, and universal testing um, so that um, Masadov has been able to, in a sense, in his program has been able to save um, literally hundreds of children from what is um, undoubtedly a, a death sentence. So what medications are being used, um, the, the uh, Russian Federation um, doctors largely adhere to um, a hybrid of, of international treatment guidelines. And so the typical treatment would involve the use of uh, AZT and 3TC um, branded Combivir, um, and typically with um, a boosted protease inhibitor, ritonavir plus uh, um, uh, sequinavir, um, and alternatively with nivirapine. 
And the women can continue on treatment? Is it available to them? Interesting topic. In general terms, no. Um, the women generally don't stay on therapy, with, with the exception of those who um, have more advanced disease and meet criteria for continuous therapy. Um, so the, there's a bit of a, um, a split be, or uh, um, two different groups of patients presenting with HIV. Those, are, those patients with very advanced disease, and then there's the pregnant women who present with earlier stage um, infection. And the women with higher CD4 counts generally don't stay on continuous therapy, um, despite the fact that you know, they now have um, newborn children. And I guess one thing we didn't mention is uh, the treatment of opportunist infections. Are there medications for that and other knowledgeable people? I, th- I, think the, I think that in general terms, the answer is yes. Russia has fairly good access to the, the medicines that we use uh, for most opportunistic infections, certainly um, you know, the medications for treatment of pneumocystis um, and uh, cytomegalovirus are, are available in the major centers. I think, the, 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 again, the interesting thing is that the major opportunistic infection in Russia is tuberculosis, followed by hepatitis C. The issues with the latter is that hepatitis C is, is viewed as a marker of injection drug use, um, and injection drug use, or active injection drug users, are largely thought as people who are just be, are simply not capable of being adherent, and therefore therapy is often not even offered to these patients. But to your question, again, um, the opportunistic infections are seen, um, primarily tuberculosis, um, and with a lesser number of hemocystis and cytomegalovirus cases. So has doing this work changed the way you practice medicine in the United States? Yes, ab- ab- absolutely, in, in, in many and un- in often unexpected ways. Um, I think for those of us who um, were doing HIV care before the advent of successful therapy, you know, we were exposed to um, an awful lot of um, uh, disease and suffering. Um, in the last 10 years, really, we really we've, in, in many ways, from a day-to-day perspective, forgotten about that. Um, working in, in Russia, working in, in Eastern Europe, um, provides a constant reminder that HIV, uh, even in middle-class countries, um, is is causing disease and mor- morbidity to literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of individuals, all of whose lives could be improved by the simple access to antiretroviral therapies. So it, it's, a, it's a way to, to reignite and catalyze um, this notion of advocacy and, and bring to, to everyday reality um, a sense of, of, of urgency in making sure that people um, have access to care both here in the United States uh, and abroad. More importantly, it, it certainly provided a, a learning vehicle um, to uh, a teaching vehicle, not just for my Russian colleagues, but but really bi-directionally. In that, I've learned a lot about tuberculosis that I never um, had exposure to in in, a, in over a decade of work here in the United States. Um, and probably the most important is the is the reverse lesson in a sense to my patients. Um, they're always very interested in hearing about what's going on you know, from my travels. Um, and the very simple statement that there are people out there dying because they don't have access to any medicines um, provides um, a motivating, uh, if um, not inspiring, um, reason for my patients to continue to be uh, as adherent as possible to their medications. Um, and in the end, I think all of us feel that uh, all of us here in the United States, um, on this side of the Atlantic, feel very fortunate to the access to the, uh, to the resources that we have. And I think that that fundamentally changed the way that I approach my patients and the way that my patients think about um, their access to health care. 
Well, related to that, what, what percentage of people with HIV have access to meds in Russia? Well, again, the, the statistics are, are often um, a bit fuzzy in terms of the, their accuracy. Um, in St. Petersburg, um, there are roughly 30,000 individuals known to have HIV uh, that is, say, registered with the federal government. Um, of those, fewer than 2,000 have access to continuous care. And I think that that's a situation that my St. Petersburg colleagues will say uh, needs to needs to change. Um, part of the difficulty is because um, uh, of stigma. Part of the difficulty is because of the amount, the numbers of antiretroviral medications that are avail- currently available. Um, part of the issue is the notion that um, injection drug users uh, can't adhere and therefore are not really included in the denominator of, of the population that is theoretically eligible for, for antiretroviral therapies. So it's a situation that um, uh, is, in, is in flux. Um, there are uh, ongoing and significant difficulties um, that are faced by the, the larger, the large majority of patients in the Russian Federation in terms of access to care. How, how many times have you been to Russia now? Um, I've been to, to Russia three times in the last six months, um, and um, or seven months, and um, and I think I'm going on my now fifth trip to Ukraine, um, and so uh, quite a few trips in the last uh, two and a half years. How has it changed the way you see your job? It, it seems like you're you're doing this more and more often. Yeah, I think this is one of these things where uh, I'm both a glutton for uh, jet lag, I suppose, but but really a I'm a um, uh, I'm addicted to, to travel at, at the at the at the personal level, but the ability to fuse that um, that, that um, wanderlust with uh, this incredible sense of of being able to help not just one patient but whole communities of patients um, is is incredibly fulfilling, um, and uh, so something that you know I hope to be able to continue doing for a long time. Um, it's it. I live in a very fortunate business environment where my, I'm very I'm very proud of the, the people I work with in, here in Denver. We have decided that, that these kinds of um, programs and trips where we leave the office um, to help others at, frankly, considerable financial cost to, and, and workload to, our, to, my, you know, to, to my partners who stay behind. And, and we do that with, with our eyes wide open, knowing that this is an important um, mission for us, both professionally and personally. Well, well, thank you, Ben. It's really inspiring to hear from you, and we look forward to hearing from you again when you come back from Ukraine. Thanks, Bonnie. I'd love to tell you about uh, the next trip uh, uh, to Ukraine. This has been HIV Frontlines from The Body Pro. Be sure to check in frequently at thebodypro.com for the latest news and information on HIV, including in-depth interviews with researchers and healthcare professionals.